All right, everybody. This is another one of our mentor interviews. It's Ty here. And today I'm excited to have Ben Greenfield on the phone, a friend of mine. I'm actually holding in his uh, in my hand his new book. He's nice enough to send down to me, Beyond Training. It's an awesome book. Quite a book you wrote, man. I'm impressed. It's, uh, it's what, three, 400 pages. And uh, so a lot of you have probably heard of Ben before. He can be described in many ways. Uh, I think of him uh, in my own mind. I kind of keep shortcuts of keeping track of people I know as the guy who knows how to train extreme athletes. And, of course, you know, he's got a mil- million other qualifications beyond that. But that's that's a quick and easy way. Um, and that's better than that's he, better than being known as the guy who wears ugly sweaters. <laughs> Is that how some people know you? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Bill Cosby sweater. So, um, so here's here's how this works. Just so everybody knows, listening in, um, I am a huge believer in the power of mentors. My TED talk is about that. My life is about that. My academy, the people that I that I work with and help in business and in life in general. You know, since sixteen since I was sixteen years old, I've been looking for what I call the GTOE. The grand theory of everything. What are the things that solve all of life's hard problems? What are the answers, right? So what I do in these interviews, whether they're in person or uh, on the phone or however they are, I'm trying to go give me and the people that are listening in answers on life's hard questions. And what are the four big areas? Health, wealth, love, and happiness. That's what everybody wants. That's like the thing. So... Today we're going to be focused, although Ben, of course, also has a very successful business and he's happily married, his children, and I think I've hung out with him in person, he's a pretty happy guy, so you kind of have all four of them going, but uh, this uh, this will particularly, you know, I want to focus on health. We were just talking about this the last time, you and I were just talking as friends, and it made me think, because some of the stuff you said, and just to give you a background if you're listening, I asked, I was like, Ben. If you had to say one quick thing to people out there in the world, the biggest bang for the buck for improving your body, health, and what would it be? And you said sleep. Mm-hmm. And you said a couple other things, but why don't we just drop, start there? Like, I'm, I'm all for starting. What's, uh, why, and let, let me, I want to read this just because I want to, I didn't give you the best intro known to mankind, so. You know, on the back of your book here, you have the Ironman world champion, Chris Maka McCormick. And he said about your book and what you wrote, this this truly is the last book you'll ever need in order to uh, to master endurance, health, and life. That's pretty impressive from the, the number one fitness Ironman in the world right now to say you are the uh, the best. You got it. I know you have a master's in physiology and biomechanics. You're a certified strength coach, all that good stuff, but. And you were, I saw this, this is cool. I didn't know this. You were named uh, one of the top 100 most influential people in the world in health. Pretty good. Yeah, and I'm glad he, I'm glad he wrote that. He saved people uh, a lot of money because nobody ever has to buy a book again about anything related to the human body. So <laughs> just, just that one book. That's good. <laughs> so there you go. You get 20 years from now. You don't need any other book. Um, That's it. Yeah, I think so. Let's start sleep. Why? Why you? Uh, it's funny that you asked me about sleep because I literally just woke up. Um, I'm, I'm curled up here in the sunlight on my 
patio with my dog Blitzen and still kind of kind of in, in the waking stages from my afternoon siesta. And I'm a big, big fan of sleep just because, um, you know, it's not because I'm lazy. It's because I understand the importance of sleep in enhancing neuronal repair and recovery, in optimizing hormones, and in allowing for muscle protein synthesis. So there's okay. a reason, and, and I'll explain what I mean by that, but there's a reason that some of the best professional athletes on the face of the planet are sleeping anywhere from 9 to 11 hours. And that's not as much as the average person needs to sleep, right? Your your sleep needs to go up the more that you require your body to be engaged in repair and recovery in everything from mobilization of amino acids to repair muscle fibers to repairing nerve cells that have been broken down by constantly transmitting signals. But even if you're not a professional athlete, that seven to nine hour range type of scenario is very, very important because as you sleep, that's when your body cleans up junk. That's when when cells turn over. That's when a lot of what's called cellular apoptosis occurs, meaning that cells literally uh, kill some cells. Some cells turn over. You get reparation of nerve cells. You wake up literally every single morning a new person, literally, from a cellular standpoint, if you're sleeping properly. When I so what do you tell properly, people? So let's, let's say we have someone on this call, and they're sleeping. I read the average American in the modern world, people around the world are sleeping like six. So what happens if you're almost at the seven? Is it like a black and white line that if you don't hit a certain number, you're just going backwards? Sure. Well, ideally, ideally, you need to get at least two deep sleep cycles uh, per circadian rhythm. And a deep sleep cycle is going to take a minimum of 90 minutes to achieve. So what that means is you got to sleep at least, let's say you are you are sleeping four hours a night. you got to sleep those four hours a night, but that means later on at some point you're going to need to take like a 90-minute nap you know, with, with the, the buildup to getting into the deep sleep phase cycle of that nap if you want to optimize repair, recovery, circadian rhythm, um, growth hormone production, regulation of appetite hormones. Excuse me, Why couldn't you get happen. in the four hours? But in the four hours, if 90 minutes is an hour and a half, why couldn't you get the two cycles in that four hours? Because you have four different stages of sleep. And you have to go through three different stages prior to even getting into that 90-minute sleep stage. And then for any of us who have been woken up by a blaring alarm clock and know how it feels to get ripped out of deep sleep, you actually have to go back out of that deep sleep stage. So ideally, from a cellular repair and recovery standpoint, you are asleep or in bed for a few hours before you even get into your deep sleep stage. And then you're there for a while, and in an ideal sleep cycle, you're going through a few different deep sleep phases. I mean, some people go through three to four different 90-minute sleep stages during a night of like an eight-hour sleep. And that's what your body actually requires for repair and recovery. Now, that doesn't mean that for for hard-charging people out there that they have to sleep eight to nine hours a night because you can use you can use a polyphasic sleep cycle. And a lot of people seem to be just hardwired this way. A lot of people will wake up at midnight or, you know, 2 a.m., and they're just up. You know, that's the way they're okay. hardwired. They're, 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 
a little bit neurotic, which is okay. Uh, they've got a little bit of that warrior gene, which is okay right. because um, it's it's almost like a like a survival mechanism, right? You're you're that person who would be the watchman on the tower in the in the in the ancestral times. But what that means is that if you're one of those people who wakes up at midnight, it's okay to kind of kind of do some some low level activity. Um, you know, read a little bit next to a non-bright light, stay away from computers, email, stuff like that, get a little bit done. And for my clients, what I have them do during this time is the only light that they'll use in their home is an infrared light, it's like an infrared lamp, which is very similar to like the, the fire type of light or the, or the starlight that our ancestors would have experienced. So it doesn't, it doesn't shut What's down. What's it called again? Release. What's it called? Uh, the light? The infrared light? You can you can okay, get for for five for five to ten bucks an infrared light like a uh, a light bulb five hundred watt infrared light bulb. So you're saying like in your so in your bedroom you swap out the light bulbs with these infrared ones. Well, there's two different ways you could do it, Ty. You could you could either keep your existing light bulbs and everything how they are, and you just get okay. one of these little one of these little light stands that you plug a light into. You keep that next to your bed, and that's what I do. And it's got an infrared bulb. Uh, attached when you just flip that on if you're up at night. Like if you wake up at night, you want to get some things done and go back to bed. So that's okay. Another way that you can do it is uh, like like the company Philips. They make a system called the Hue system, H-U-E. And that's a system where you actually put these lights into whichever rooms in your house where you want to, to adjust the wavelength of the light. You can choose red, blue, yellow. It just lets you cycle through whatever color that you want. So you could technically change the lighting system of a room depending on your whims. Like you could have a bunch of blue light in the morning, which is actually really, okay. really good at jumpstarting your body. Then you could switch to red light at night. So the idea here is the, the this whole polyphasic sleep cycle thing that we're talking about. So you 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 can wake up in the night, and that's, that's one option, and go back to bed. Some people Correct. will, just based on their lifestyle, you know, whatever, your busy job, um, kids, you know, for me, went through a lot of this when I had my newborn twin boys. You're only going to be sleeping four to six hours a night. It's just reality for you. Well, in that case, okay. you want you want to get a nap in, and right. generally the best best time of day to nap, based on circadian rhythms, is going to be somewhere around six hours or so after you wake up. Um, so one one. But for most people, that's time. like most people is like early afternoon. Then for most people. 11 a.m., 12 p.m., 1 p.m. siesta-ish type of material. Now let me let me throw in one thing here, because so you said that uh, it takes a while to get into your sleep, but then you also said you can take a nap, a 90-minute nap. But would a 90-minute well, nap? Can, how would that get you into your deep sleep if you need multiple time ahead of time? Is a nap different than regular sleep somehow? That right, it jumps you right into it. There's there's a few different scenarios that we're talking about here. One would be you are short on sleep, but you want to do the least damage possible. So in that case, you get in a nap. It might be 40 minutes. It might be 60 minutes. If you're lucky, it might be 90 minutes. But you're trying to minimize the damage, right? So And okay. this would be you're trying to string yourself along. The, the, the second option would be you are literally wanting to biohack your way into ideal sleep and get away with as little sleep as possible at night. That's a scenario where you're actually bumping yourself up to a good 90 minutes of a deep sleep cycle in the middle of the day, which ultimately results in almost two hours spent in bed. 
for like an afternoon nap time. And that would be if you're just, you know, your lifestyle is such that you're not sleeping much at night at all. And then you've also got the scenario where you're just, you know, eight to nine hours in bed each night type of person, in which case you you don't necessarily need a nap. I'm personally about seven to eight hours of sleep a night, and then I take an afternoon nap of anywhere from 45 to 90 minutes. So So here's it. Let me throw um, my my experience with naps. So my experience is if I take too long of a nap, I feel weird for a long time. Maybe I need to take a longer one. But for me, if I do like 25, I go into my room, get a book midday, I wish I was better at this, but I've been decent at it. I go into my room, spend 25, I set my alarm for 30 minutes, grab a book. I'll generally read for about 15 and then naturally fall asleep and sleep for anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes, and I pop up feeling amazing. If I go longer Mm -hmm. than that, I feel like weird for the next three hours. Yeah, and that that light sleep can be restorative. It's not it's not a phase of sleep where you're going to get like nerve cell repair or muscle cell repair, but it's almost like switching your brain off just a little bit. Um, yeah, it's like light meditation yeah. almost. Very very similar to doing something like a break for mindfulness based meditation, something like that. One of the things that that I do now for my afternoon nap, and you know I. I I, I talk about some things like biohacks and stuff like that in the book, and I'm I'm big into trying out all sorts of different pieces of technology. But I I talked about that infrared lamp. You can also get mats that emit infrared wavelengths. Yeah, yeah my friend warm. has my friend Brian loves. It. He swears by it. So does my mom. You like these things? These mats? Well, some mats are called earthing mats, and those just yeah. release. Uh, those release a magnetic field it's called earthing or grounding. You know, it's very therapeutic yeah. to go lay out on your back in the backyard or walk around in your bare feet. It's really, really good for jet lag, too, if you travel across multiple time zones to help restore your circadian rhythms. But this is different. Um, this is actually infrared wavelengths that they they give you this, this almost like warming, heating sensation. And I take my afternoon nap on that, and I wake up in a pile of my own drool. A, a long time later. I mean, like I'm out, and that thing is is amazing. Huh. Um, but it's also where do you get it? Is it on Amazon? Um, I ordered it from the company. It was like it was biomat.com or something like that. I don't remember the exact URL, but it's called the Biomat. Okay. I think you can get them off Amazon. They're kind of expensive. They're they're like thirteen hundred bucks around there. So um, they also have and, and this this. Is, is kind of woo-woo for some folks, but they also have crystals in them. They've got amethyst right. and formalene crystals, and um, the idea behind those is that very similar to, like, the, the natural geological formations on the planet. They emit a little bit of a negative ion, and that supposedly counteracts a lot of the positive ion exposure you get from, like, your Wi-Fi router or computers and stuff like that. So it's supposed to have a little bit of a mitigating effect against EMF. Um, I'm I'm not sold on that concept, but I'm definitely sold on the concept of infrared therapy, infrared saunas, infrared light, and these these infrared mats. So let's okay. So let's let I want to move. We'll come back. To, I think sleep's so horrid. So I'm gonna I'm gonna step back and I'm gonna ask you the question because we kind of I like to jump into something right at the beginning so people kind of get a feel for what we're gonna talk about. But I'm gonna step back big picture now. I'm gonna ask you the question. Uh, one of my mentors, Alan Nation, said. I can't remember. He reads a book a day. He's the first person I really met that read a book a day, and I picked up the habit of reading a book a day from him. And 
there's a book, I think it's called Swimming with the Sharks or something, and it basically says when you meet amazing people, ask them one set question. And I've added my own, so i got two now. I took that one. <laughs> and that, So the first one, think about both these before you even answer. The first one is if you could go back and relive your life over, let's say your adult life, okay, what would you do different in terms of, your your physical health not everything i'm not asking just health wise what would you have done different earlier okay that's the first question we're going to talk about you know for the rest of our time and then the second question is imagine you found out this was your last day on planet earth okay you've got children you've got to write a manual on health for your kids and leave it to them so that every the main and you don't have all the time in the world you don't have time to write a a book. I know you've written a book, but you don't have time to do that. You've got to just impart to them a handful of core things so that you've passed on to your children and your grandchildren the most important things they need to know about health. So let's, we've already know we can put health, uh, sleep is maybe one of those, but let's start with the first question and we can do that for a little while, then we can ask this second question. So the first question, you could go back knowing all the things you know today, like the old Dutch saying, too, uh, too soon, old, too late, smart. Like we all, the problem with life is we don't, by the time we're smart, we're too old to implement the stuff. And you're a pretty young guy, so, but if you could go back, you could be 18 again. You, but you have all the knowledge you have in your brain. What would you have done different? Well, I've been, I've put my body through the gamut. I've done bodybuilding, um, and I've also done Ironman triathlon. So I've been through the rigors of the extreme speed, power, strength. You know, I was a collegiate tennis player, played water polo, played middle for the men's volleyball team, and then made a switch into endurance sports, marathoning, Ironman, things of that nature. And I didn't really begin thinking about this concept of the minimal effective dose of exercise with the maximum amount of recovery until just a couple of years ago. And for me, it took raging high blood cortisol levels shown to me on lab results for me to realize that I was actually doing things internally, physiologically. That was one of my inspirations for writing the book was realizing that you can be healthy on the outside but not healthy on the inside. And so if I could go back and change one thing over the course of the past, you know, uh, 13 years of kind of engaging in high-performance activities – it would be to train minimally and to live as naturally as possible. So, like, lift, sprint, move around a lot, but not do the traditional uh, extreme exercise or athlete um, modern-day fitness protocol of basically just working out to eat, eating to work out, exercising, 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 and, you know, um, uh, being able to to eat anything possible just because you're exercising it away, but basically instead looking at things from a much more natural, holistic standpoint. So now my day involves lots of time spent on my feet, moving naturally. Yeah, I'm a blogger. I'm a writer. You know, a lot of my time is spent doing phone consults with people and writing for magazines and writing articles and managing websites. But I'm on my feet most of the day. 
walking around okay. my house, um, exposing myself to everything from sunlight on my back porch to uh, to uh, cold showers and cold thermogenesis and cold to heat saunas, basically trying to treat my body as if it were like hunting, gathering, farming, you know, basically right. that ancestral way. And then I throw a little bit of exercise in as like the icing on the cake. And most people do the complete opposite, and I did the complete opposite for a long time. You sit all day, you get a bunch of work done, you're super hyperproductive, and then either the beginning of the day or the end of the day, you destroy yourself in some stale indoor gym setting, whatever, doing, you know, machine circuit or or free weights or whatever. And that was the way that I did things for a long time, you know, whether it meant I was sitting all day and then, um, you know, hopping on a, on a bike trainer to do a two hour training session for Ironman or, or whether I was, you know, sitting all day in class and going to the gym to lift weights for a couple of hours for bodybuilding. I mean, even bodybuilding, if I could go back and do that over again, I'd be doing just what I do now, you know, walking around the house, staying with that light, low-level physical activity, and then every once in a while going out and lifting heavy stuff. Like I keep a heavy kettlebell out in my garage, and I've got a pull-up bar in the door of my office. And, you know, I, I have these little things spread throughout my life that allow me to engage in this physical activity throughout the day and then just like short high intensity stuff. For me I do I do this stuff between about four and six PM in the afternoon for my exercise because that's when your protein synthesis peaks, that's when your reaction time peaks, that's when your nervous system activity peaks. So I I do very, very easy stuff in the morning. A little bit of yoga, a little bit of breathing. But then in the afternoon I do short, brief bouts of high intensity bursts. And then everything else is just trying to live as naturally as possible rather than that whole, like, sedentary plus exercise type of scenario. So if I could change so this one is, thing. So that's the thing you would change. You would change that more holistic, integrated approach. It's fascinating you say this. I'm going to tell you why. We're on the same wavelength, man. Uh, I recently have been doing a lot of research. I, you know, it just – I grew – I've been around – Joel Salatin was here recently, and, and I lived with Amish for a couple – two and a half years and I've been on a farm for 10 years and, and uh, I'm good friends with Dr. David Buss, the evolutionary psychologist. So just finished his amazing book, probably the best, I own 5,000 books, the best book I think that's in print right now if you want to know like maybe after yours Ben, but uh, anyway. I was so going to say. <laughs> I'll put that a little disclaimer, but here's the thing. Um, I've been researching there's a lot of people trying to emulate hunter-gatherer, for example, whether it's paleo, and some of that there's truth and some there isn't. There's, uh, and I will tell you this, what I've found. and um, One, um, hunter-gatherers, if you look at the way they lived, and we evolved 90% of, the, of Homo sapiens, and even before Homo sapiens, humans, we, we've been hunter-gatherers. That's like our, our thing. So it's not cavemen, you know, it's because cavemen are different. We came from hunter-gatherers. And what they do is brief bursts of activity, a lot of resting, a lot of laying down. Um, and, in fact, there's a new article out. Uh, there's a few groups left, um, the Hadzas in eastern Tanzania. There's not many hunter-gatherers mm-hmm. left, but they've been studying them. They put And they found a couple of interesting things. One is that, they don't really burn that many more calories than we do. Okay? They eat yeah. less food. Yeah. They eat less food. That's why they're not fat. 
So that was an interesting exactly. thing. But here's the, here's the next fascinating thing. Along as I'm doing this research, find, I find all this research out there from Harvard and, and really prestigious places saying two hours of working out in a gym does not offset eight hours of sitting. Like nothing offsets eight hours of sitting. So I've been, yep. so I've been experimenting. I built out this thing. It's, I haven't really announced this to the public, but I think I'm going to make a book about it. It's, it's the office gym. So I took my, my um, three-car garage, pulled all the cars out of it. I got a uh, nice little office. I got a little bouncy ball to sit in, not a regular chair when I want to sit, but it's a standing desk so you can elevate things. Now, I don't like it. The, the yep. treadmill idea is cool. I, I'm not huge on boring stuff. So I opened the three-car garage, and right out there I have a basketball. I love basketball. Um, I was talking – I was reading uh, – I can't remember where. Uh, maybe it was even I – I was talking to a friend. Oh, I was reading the book Born to Run. Using a ball yeah. is one of the best things to do. So I, I play basketball. <laughs> I got a pitch. It's, it's, it's so strange you're saying this because I've actually been – doing two things when I'm doing my runs because I, I recently read a book called What Makes Olga Run that shows one of the best ways to maximize neuroplasticity is to um, basically incorporate something complex along with exercise. It's like Sudoku. The way they describe yeah. it in the book is that Sudoku is a shovel for improving neuroplasticity and cognition, and that exercise with something complex is like a bulldozer. So I've actually right. been doing some of my runs around the block, either dribbling a basketball or I get yep. three tennis balls and I got to yep. juggle those tennis balls every once in a while while I'm running. And yep. I mean, there are other ways you can do the Zumba, salsa dance, stuff like that. But I mean, that that requires, you know, a little bit more, uh, more uh, scheduling and all that jazz, but I'm 100% on board with you as far as that goes. Read, man, read, if you have not, have you read Born to Run? Yeah, I've read I've read Born to Run. I actually when I've the last Ironman triathlon that I did, that was one of the little mental hacks that that I used was this whole fact that the Tamamahara Indian tribe is, Yeah, Tamamahara. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, they they um they're very focused on love and gratitude even when they're out running, like how much they love and how much they're grateful for the physical movement that they're doing. And I actually used that when I was in my last Ironman out in the lava fields of Hawaii where it's so hot that the the pavement is burning the bottoms of your feet through your shoes. And I just kept telling myself, I love this. I'm I'm grateful that I'm out here, you know, with the wind in my hair and the, the you know, the, the ocean spray and all this jazz. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic book, but this, this idea of ancestral living, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here next to my dog and he's a lion hunter. This is a Rhodesian Ridgeback. And, yeah. You know, Blitzen will sit here. He'll sit here for five hours today, and guess what? He's not out of shape. He could go out and run seven, eight, nine miles easily. We could go out in the forest right now, and he would be running circles around me. And I think a lot of people, especially athletes, they're afraid that they're going to lose their fitness if they aren't doing all these exercise sessions, and they're using instead this concept of kind of moving around really light throughout the day, living life, just, you know, get, getting the sleep in, doing the naps, and then every once in a while lifting heavy stuff, every once in a while sprinting. And really, you don't have to go out, even if you want to run a marathon, you don't have to go out and be, you know, pounding the pavement and beating yourself up every day. So, yes, yeah, it's just this light, low-level physical activity, this ancestral way of life. If you ask me what I would have changed, I would have started doing this stuff a lot earlier. I call that, I learned at the Amish, I call it, the integrated life. You know, one of the problems we have as humans right now 
is think about it. You know, so I live with the Amish. So the Amish, and this one I was in my 20s, but I also, other places, I noticed it. And Jared Diamond in the book uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, he says the Amish mm-hmm. have 20% of the depression levels of the modern world. They're five times happier. And I saw why. Because there's no separation. You don't go to work and leave your kids behind, work nine to five, go through traffic, come home. You don't, uh, you're ex- there's no gym. Your religion is not separated from your friends. You don't go on Sunday. It's all one life. You just live life. I'm, I'm reading Phil Jackson, the basketball coach, uh, a mm-hmm. book uh, called Lord of the Rings. About, and he says, he said, of Americans, the Sioux Indians, and, and they said, there's just one life. So I think yeah. on health is there is no my life is crappy over here. I sit in a, a cubicle all day. If you do it right, get a treadmill desk, get a zero gravity desk. I've actually read putting your feet above your head, like when you, instead of laying down to and normally to read, put your feet up a little bit while you read, and and build like you're saying. You're jogging sometimes. You're picking up something heavy sometimes. You're going about as if you were living an integrated life, just living your life, not. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and one important thing about this, and this, this is a study that just came out, I think it was a week or two ago, was that you don't have to look at this as you getting a standing desk and just like standing there all day long. What, what it looks like is that it's the constant movement, like the 50-50, the sit, stand, move, walk around. It's adjusting positions throughout the day that turns out to be the most important variable here. Because you can actually do damage to your to your core muscles, to your low back muscles. You can get, you know, varicose veins like a Las Vegas waitress if you're just like standing there in the same position yes, all day long. Exactly. So plus it's boring. Plus it's yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> I've I've even got you know speaking of, of of hacks you know that that I talk about in the book, I've got an inversion table out in my garage, and when you invert, you build better capillarization in the brain. So you improve blood flow and blood delivery to the brain, which is fantastic for cognition, but you also help to drain the feet and you decompress the spine. So after a day of standing and, and kind of kind of being on your feet, that's a fantastic little treat because you, you go out and you, you hang from an inversion table. And these, these are easy to find on Craigslist or Amazon or whatever for about five to ten minutes. And it just feels fantastic. I do that as well when I'm when I'm traveling after the flying. And a real a real a real cheap way to do that too is uh is just go up, sit it, lay against the wall like you're laying down, but put your feet straight up in the air. It's not as good as inversion, but it's for people listening yeah, in that don't, that don't have that option. You can get your you get that blood drink. There's a lot of science. If you just Google, you know, putting your feet above your head. When you get people who have various, like, varicose vein problems or even heart issues, you know, it's elevate, elevate. Yeah. That's the inversion process. The blood flows yeah. backward. Yeah, you don't get the spinal decompression, but you get everything else. So, yeah. Okay, so let's move on. That's an awesome answer. I love your answer, what you would do different. All right, let's move to the second thing. And we already touched on it. Let's do the three things. You only have time. This is your last day on planet Earth. You've got to impart your wisdom, all the knowledge that's in your head, to your children. And you're writing it down, or you're, you're let's just say, telling me. You don't even have time to write. We, we got three things. The first one I think we covered, right? Sleep? Yeah, but I wouldn't say it by saying sleep. I would, I okay. Would, I would, I would, I would, let's I would, say all three. I'm going to leave you, let, let you say how you'd want to say it. 
Yeah, I I would phrase it as rest because okay. we we live in a society where we're pressured to be hyper productive all the time. We're pressured to have our cell phone on, checking Facebook or email all the time, or always be thinking about the next project, always be thinking about the next screen time. You know, I just finished a book written by um, by a, a new friend of mine, Charlie Hone. He wrote a book called The Workaholic's Cure to Anxiety. And, you know, one, one of the things he goes into in that book is, like, all the ways to know if you're anxious. You know, one of them is just, like, you're constantly thinking or, or worrying if you're not productive, right? You're not able to just sit um, like my wife does. This used to annoy me until I, I learned the value of it. She used to just go out on the back patio and just, like, sit there with a glass of wine at night. And she'd sit there for like an hour, and I'd walk out there, and I'd be like, "You want a book?" She's like, "No." I'm like, "Do you want like an MP3 player or something?" To you know, I got an audio book you could listen to. She'd be like, "No, I'm fine." And she'd just sit there, just feeling the wind in her cheeks and watching the the sunset. And it took me a long time to get hardwired that way to be able to just sit around and rest and take a break. And even though sleep is a component of that, I think it requires an even bigger view of the world, and that is that it's okay if you're not productive 24-7. And, and again, not an excuse to be lazy, but it's okay to turn the body off, and the body operates. So if we look at at athletes, what's the best way to train? It's high-intensity interval training. Boom. You go on, and when you're on, you are on. It is hardcore. And when 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 you're off, you're off, and it's hard, easy, hard, easy. That's a great way to train. It's also a good way to live. You you got to you got to turn yourself off sometimes, and then when you go on, you turn yourself on. You know whether you want to call it the Pomodoro principle or interval training or whatever. This idea of incorporating rest into your life is that would be number one. Is okay. So number one, we got rest, rest, recover. So if you're listening yeah. to this, and you're, I always say, I love this saying. It's an old saying. If you're in life and you don't know, who, if you're in a room and you don't know who the sucker is, you're the sucker. But we see 2,000 advertisements in the modern world, minimum per day, people trying to sell you something, people saying, hey, use your health, use your money for my benefit, not yours. So what you're saying is in the modern world especially, you have to be able to go, enough is enough, this is the time where I relax, whether it be real sleep, you know, at night, naps, or just putting your feet up, grabbing a book, laying out and staring at off into space or meditate, whatever it is your thing, you, you're saying you got to cycle down and cycle yep. up and cycle down. Okay, so what's number yep, two? Exactly. So number two, I'm going to cheat on you, and it's actually kind of like a, a, a two-fold thing, but it's a, it's a rule that I live by. Okay? okay. Be uncomfortable every day and once a week do something that scares you. Okay. okay. So So every day – you know, we talked earlier about exposing yourself to the, the, the hormetic stressors of cold and the hormetic stressors of heat. Both of those enhance cardiovascular blood flow. They shut down inflammatory cytokines. They um, enhance your ability to tolerate um, uh, stress, ability to tolerate pain. And there are a lot of really cool things when you step outside this comfort zone of air conditioning and heating. Uh, every day I do cold thermogenesis, whether it's a walk down to the river for a soak in the cold river, whether it's a few cold showers during the day, 
about two to three times a week, and I will be doing this later on today. I subscribe to a bunch of different magazines, and whereas I won't do this with my books because it, it destroys the glue in the books and they fall apart, I take my magazines into the sauna, and I'll sit in there until my heart's pounding on my chest. It takes about 30 to 40 minutes, and I'll expose myself to that discomfort of heat. Um, other ways, yeah. of course, for a, lot of, for a lot of people, discomfort is just, you know, moving and exercise. Heck, for some people, discomfort is maybe getting your butt out of a chair and doing some of the things we talked about earlier. But every day, you do something uncomfortable. You you make yourself, you know, as Nassim Talib kind of says in his book, anti-fragile, right? Every day, you're exposing yourself to mild hormetic stressors. So not, not okay. chronic stress from replying to emails all day, but literally mild physical stressors. And then you do something epic once a week, something that scares you once a week. It can be a workout that you got out of a magazine or off like the, you know, the Spartan website or something like that. That's like, you know, it can be something like a hundred burpees. You know, that's, that's a perfect example of something that scares me. It's like do a hundred burpees. And, and that's one of those deals where, man, it's, it's hard. Um, you're, you're, you're sucking air or something you don't want to do, but you're forcing yourself way outside your comfort zone. Now, I, there are some people that will say to do something like that every day. I think that's a recipe for nervous system overtraining and fatigue and, you, you can't fight a lion every day, but once a week, you get out there and you do something that scares you. Uh, another example would be I was in um, Austin, Texas. This was on, what day is it today? It's Friday. This would have been on Wednesday morning, and I went out for a run, and I came across this giant tree, and it was up above this big concrete slab, this giant tree. I'm standing at the base of this tree looking up at it, and I'm thinking I could probably climb this thing. And I started to climb it, and I got pretty scared about a quarter of the way up that thing. I thought, what if I fall? I'm by myself <laughs> out here. Let me talk. But I made it almost to the top of that tree and then sat down on the top branch. And nobody even knew I was up there. There were people, you know, every once in a while, this was early in the morning, somebody would walk by, and, you know, I'd just be up perching that tree like a monkey. And it was scary. It was scary going up. It was scary going down. But I guarantee that there were new neural pathways formed by me right. doing something that scared me. So yep. step outside your comfort zone. And for some people, I mean, a freaking a freaking salsa class, you know, in a, right. in a, you know, for you guys out there in a room full of pretty girls, maybe that is scary. But, you know, you choose something every week that takes you way outside your comfort zone. So be uncomfortable. I don't know. Day. Did you read my – I posted a, recently one of the most popular posts that I've done in a while in terms of virality. It, it was just basically saying, you know, are you soft? And I talked about this thing, a nation is born stoic. It's from Will and Ariel Durant, the most fam maybe the most famous historians of our time. They wrote the story of civilization, and they say, nations are born stoic and die epicurean. What do, stoics are people who said, I'm going to forego pleasant, uh, present pleasure in order to get a future benefit, and Epicureans were the opposite. They were like, YOLO, you only live once. Get what you can't. Do what feels good now, yeah. and we live in a world saturated and permeated and with people saying just live for now all this mcdonald's it tastes good now it tastes good now what we need you know we i said in my article we don't need an uh 50, more kim kardashian uh paris hilton's running after louis vuitton shoes what we need is 300 spartans like in the movie 300 and <laughs> if you look at how the spartans trained each other or trained and i'm not saying there's no room for luxury of course there is i'm saying the world needs balance, and it's 
far out of balance in terms of us just being weak and soft. And if you look at what the Stoics did, they purposely put each, each other and themselves, just like you said, through things that were hard in order to toughen up. You know, I sheared sheep in New Zealand. Uh, I, I went to 51 countries when I was younger trying to find out the answers, like just like we're doing on this call with you. And I was in New Zealand for a while making my way through South Pacific, and I ran out of money, so I started shearing sheep. You could make decent money. And it was a hard – I've done everything almost in the world. That's from jujitsu to milking cows by hand. And, hey, anything – lifting weights, nothing's harder – been shearing sheep and these guys start at four five in the morning they do 50 minute runs so 50 10 minutes break 50 minutes on they do it 14 hours a day probably not the healthiest yep. but one thing i learned from them if you start to complain they just turn to you and be like harden up man harden up like, yep. be tough they didn't want to hear yep. it and so what you're saying is we don't have to go to extremes like that we need to rest we turn off and then when we turn on, we do it in kind of these phases where every day, and I, I've written an article, I, it's, I, I think you read it on taking cold showers like the Native Americans did to teach that they would throw their, their little two- and yeah. three-year-olds and put a hole in the river, put the Sioux Indians, the missionaries found this, and they were like, are you torturing your kids? Because they'd be, it'd be yeah. in the middle of winter in South Dakota or North Dakota putting their kids in you know, zero-degree water three-year-olds, and they said, no, we're teaching them to be brave. So you, you harden up your saying there's neural pathways. And then once a week you do something like a Spartan where it's like, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to it's I'm gonna do what scares me. I'm going to burn the fear out. So that, that I totally, right. we're on the same. So what's the third one? What's our yep. and, 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 um, and, and by the way, you know, you talked about the Spartans. I, I've got, uh, uh, about two miles from my house, I've got about 10 acres, and I've got I built myself kind of a little make yourself scared type of Spartan fort up there. Where it's a, a 12 foot wall, you have to somehow figure out how to get over, and then it's got two cinder blocks with these chains that bite into your shoulders. You got to carry the chains attached to the cinder blocks up the hill. You get to the top of the hill, and there's a tire that you have to flip. It's a 250 pound tire. You got to flip it up the hill, then down the hill. And then there's a 30-foot rope climb. you got to climb up the rope and then back down the rope. And then there's a 30-foot wow. traverse climb, which is a horizontal rope. And you got to hang there and climb down the traverse climb. And then you run around to the side of my garage in the house I'm building up there, and you grab a spear, and you got to sprint up the side of the mountain. And there's two hay bales hanging from trees up at the side of the mountain. When you get up there, you got to throw the spear into the hay bale. If you miss, you got to do 30 <laughs> burpees. You, you pull the spear out, you run back down to the garage, you run back down to the bottom of the hill where that 12-foot wall is, and there's two heavy buckets of gravel. you got to carry those up the driveway, set them down, and that's round one. And that's, that's, a, that's, that's an example of something that I'll do about once every two weeks. I'll go up there and tackle that course, and it's scary and it's uncomfortable, but I, I love that whole Spartan feel. And I'll, I'll tell you what, it's a lot better than going to the gym and watching – ladies on the elliptical trainer read magazines. So, um, <laughs> so, so let me ask you next... one thing. One practical before we go to the third one. I want to hear the third one. But So people listening in from all over the world, different lifestyles, some people have, you know, responsibilities and they, and they, they can't get out of their current situation. Let's just say you're 90% of the world lives in a modern, in a big city now. People live in apartments. What? Give me a few practical things for somebody listening to this that's not, 
maybe doesn't have a three-car garage like I have to be able to turn into a gym and doesn't have some yeah. land in eight. You're, let's say you're, a, you're just, you know, you, you don't live in the New York City. It's like the average person in the world lives in kind of a maybe a, you know, a house yep. in a little apartment. What do they do? Yep. I want you to go outside and run around your block, and you're just going to do three things when you run around your block. You're going to find one thing to balance on. Okay, one thing to balance on that's hard to balance on, like a curb that you got to walk down, or maybe a, a fire hydrant you got to jump on top of and stand up for a second and then jump back off of. So one thing to balance on. You're going to find one area that you can crawl through. So it could be like some bushes, some trees, whatever, but you got to do a bear crawl, cat crawl, crocodile crawl, whatever you call it. You got to get low and you find an area you can crawl through. And then the third thing you want to find is something you have to go over. So it can be like a wall or a fence that you got to climb over, but some kind of an obstacle that you got to get your body over. If you just do those three things and you find those three things, and I guarantee no matter where you live, you can find something to balance on, something to crawl through, and something to pull yourself over. All of a sudden, the world opens up and becomes your playground, and everywhere you go and anytime you go on a run, you're going to start to see things that you can play with. And, and and it makes workouts a lot more fun. And now if I'm at, if I'm at a you know, hotel in a city, I'll go for a run, and I'll come back, you know, 90 minutes later drenched in sweat but having only run for about 20 minutes of it and spent the rest of the time just playing on stuff. So that's, that's what I would recommend folks do. Awesome, um, man. I love it. All right, let's move to the third one. Well, number three. So, here. so the third one, I mean, like, you know, I'm I'm just going to be – hyper transparent and honest with you even though i know this is a horse that's kicked to death i'm going to say it anyways when i put my two little boys to bed every night and we snuggle up we get our faces close we cuddle so they get that nice release of the the oxytocin hormone and, and they're able to kind of kind of get themselves into sleep mode i ask them about the one best thing that happened to them that day that they're most grateful for and they tell me and then when I go to bed about an hour later, I have a journal next to my bed where I write down three things that I was grateful for. It doesn't matter if it's one or two or three. That, you know, that, that, that doesn't matter. But gratitude um, is number three. And, again, I know that people talk about that all the time. It's not some big secret or anything. But it's something I do with my kids every night without fail. It's something I do myself without without fail every single night. I write it down. And... Um, you know, that, that's number three, man, is, is is to be grateful. So even for physical health, you're saying that and, – and what – so what do you see yeah. in your own life and what you and in terms of research? Are there things where gratitude creates oxytocin? Is it lowers cortisol stress? What do you see happening? Uh, the the last study that I read, I think this one was in the recent uh, Paleo magazine, uh, that one went into a shutdown, or not a shutdown, but a decrease in inflammatory cytokines. So basically the, the same type of inflammation that's associated with stress, lack of sleep, and excessive amounts of exercise goes down with positive feelings of gratitude. And right. I'm, I'm sure that there are a host of other um, favorable biological reactions that happen with gratitude, I suspect, because of the, the direct relationship to that and, and de-stressing. So, you know, when you, when you look at stuff like that, the drop in cortisol, um, for guys, you know, that drop in sex hormone binding globulin, which frees up more total testosterone to get converted into, into free testosterone. 
I suspect there's probably a little bit of a growth hormone release related to that as well. Um, and, you know, there, there are some books out there that go into the relationship between biology and gratitude. But for me, as far as my sleep quality, my health, um, my, my feelings of stress throughout the day, if I always remember something that I'm grateful for, um, that, that would be number three. So, again, I know it doesn't seem like something directly related to physical health, but a lot of times our emotions are tied pretty intimately to our health. It reminds me of my favorite poem by uh, the Indian chief Tecumseh where he's, when he says, when you rise in the morning, give thanks for the light, for your life, for your strength. Give thanks for your food and for the joy of living. If you see no reason to give thanks, the fault lies only in yourself. I always, yeah. I love this one. He liked to do it in the morning. Do you think you need to do it at night? Can it be in the morning or just one time a day? I don't think it really matters as long as it's a habit. You know, I'm looking over at my bookshelf right now. There's this book, Thanks, How the New Science of Gratitude Can Make You Happier. And I don't remember the biology that he gets into during that book. I, you know, he's got some research on the HeartMath Institute and regulation of brain waves and the, the heart-brain connection. You know, you have your, your vagus nerve that feeds into your heart where your sympathetic yep. and parasympathetic nervous system basically regulate your heart rate variability. That's something I personally test every morning with an app and a, Why does a, a heart rate monitor. But you measure uh, your yeah between gratitude and that. That's good. I want to get into that next in a few minutes. We'll we'll kind of uh, go into that. But I just I can't remember where I was reading. I'm not sure it was Entrepreneur Magazine or a Martin Seligman Authentic Happiness book, but it was talking about a man who's literally considered the uh, happiest person in the world. So scientists, he's a monk, and they took him. Uh, he may have done a TED talk. And they, if you Google the happiest man in the world, Monk, you'll find it. I'll, I'll look while we're talking. And they put him on, on all these scanning machines in terms of, you know, brain scanners and cortisol levels. And, they, and the, the scientists were like, we can't even believe that this is actually true. The areas of the brain that regulate, you know, happiness, calmness, uh, were just off the chart. And uh, so I yeah. we know, I mean, you know that Rick, oh, yeah, his name is uh, – Matthew Ricard, and he has a uh, had the habit of happiness uh, is a book. He has a oh, sorry, is a TED talk that he did, and it's fascinating. Uh, I'll try to pull, pull this up. Let me, but you know, it, the ability to um, we talked about in this first step. You're talking about for physical health, which is you know, rest, mm-hmm. rest. You do. Everybody knows we don't even have to go into the science. When you are emotionally upset, you, nobody can rest. <laughs> you know, nobody mm-hmm. can rest. So uh, maybe, uh, like you said, there's all this research. But in addition to that, I think it's in some ways it's common sense. If rest is the most important one, you know, that's your hypothesis. That's your, what you leave your kids. The happiest, the most important thing you do is rest. Well, what creates rest, real true rest? It's the ability to turn stress off and decompress and where does that emanate yeah. from some level of you know some ability to just say the world is like the world is and i'm happy now it's that zen yeah. kind of a you know the cool the cool thing is it's all quantifiable i mean right. like i mentioned this whole heart rate variability thing you can you can track the strength of your nervous system the robustness of your nervous system your nervous system's ability to respond to stress by using something as simple as heart rate variability. 
And I'm not, like, I'm into self-quantification, but I'm not one of those guys who walks around with a Fitbit and a jawbone and a freaking, you know, iPhone strapped to my armband all, all the time. Um, I do self-quantification in the morning for five minutes every morning when I wake up. I, I put on my little heart rate monitor and I open up an app. I use one called the Sweet Beat. And Sweet I five Sweet, sweet Feet? Sweet like your feet? No, Sweet, okay. sweet Beat, like heart, like heartbeat. Oh, heartbeat. Sweet beat. Okay. Yeah, the sweet beat. And it's a five-minute measurement. You could go for longer, but I just do five minutes because that's about how long it takes to get an accurate measurement. And okay. what it tells you is the the robustness and strength of your sympathetic nervous system, the robustness and strength of your parasympathetic nervous system, the health of the interplay between the two, which is the the higher your heart rate variability score, the better. Okay. The heart rate variability are, are these slight fluctuations in the amount of time between heartbeats. The more variable that is, the more tuned your nervous system is. So if you've got a high heart rate variability each morning, along with a high sympathetic and a high parasympathetic score, then you're, you're sitting pretty when it comes to your nervous system health and your ability to be able to respond to and, and withstand stress. And in okay. some cases, you know, you might find, for example, some people's heart rate variability will be high. I was I was doing a, a consult earlier with a guy who, who has this issue. Um, your heart rate variability is consistently high. So at first glance, you're like, yeah, it's, it's pretty well-tuned, but it jumps all over the place from day to day. Right. What that's an indication of is a high amount of fight-and-flight nervous system response, high sympathetic okay. nervous system tone, but low yep. parasympathetic nervous system tone. You see this a lot in, like, CrossFitters. People who are, you know, I talk about running from a lion every day. People who are doing that yeah. every day. Um, another thing that you'll see is a consistently suppressed heart rate variability, consistently low. And usually that happens in one of two cases. People who are aerobically overtrained, meaning uh, you see this a lot in like triathletes, marathoners, right. long distance, you know, athletes. And you also see it in people who have pushed themselves so far for so long with this running from a lion that they've reached a state of what's called adrenal fatigue and they don't have any sympathetic nervous system tone. Their parasympathetic nervous system has completely kind of taken over and you know that that's the person who can't even create cortisol, who's kind of living constantly tired, who relies upon sugar and caffeine in order to get through each day. And if Which it sounds like half, variability, half the world right now. <laughs> right. And the, and usually what happens is you start down the road of sympathetic nervous system overtraining. And then you get to a certain point where that poops out after several years or several decades, then parasympathetic nervous system takes over and that slowly becomes overtrained as your your rest and digest system basically has to has to do the overtime. And this can all be measured via this heart rate variability measurement that you take uh, in the morning. So it's uh, so is this a, so is this a strap that we buy and we put it on our arm? What is it? Well, so there's a few different ways to do it. Like there's a company called Azumio that makes an app. It's called the Stress Check app, and it uses the camera lens of your phone and just the basic infrared measurement. It's not as accurate, but I mean, you know. It's Wait, so it's called it's a it's an app. Can you repeat that? The app is called the Stress. That one's called. Yeah, I, yeah I've, I've actually got five different apps in the stress chapter of my book, but but Azumio is the is the is, they make one called a Stress Check app. That's pretty good. That's pretty. So awesome. what do you do? It's, it looks it uses the camera of your phone to do what? Look that, at your eyeball. That you, no, you put it against your finger. It's it's like a camera lens measurement, so it's a, it's an infrared measurement on on the finger, but they aren't that okay. accurate. 
Um, the one I use, you get a Bluetooth heart rate monitor. Like uh, I, I've got a Polar H7, the $50, $60 heart rate monitor. You can get those off Amazon. And that, okay. that's, what sends, that's what sends the signal to the phone. Um, okay. The, the company, it's kind of funny, the company Sweetbeat, um, they sent me a bunch of patches that, they, that they're beta testing. So you, like, wear this patch during the day, and it transmits the signal. So if you want to just, like, test your stress all day, you can do it. The problem, yeah. and this is where you, this is where you run into um, testing things in the trenches versus, you know, blue sky, is I told you about that mild heat stress that I do a few times a week. Well, I had this patch attached to my chest, and uh, once you get about 20 minutes into a hot sauna session, that battery gets really hot, and I started to like, burn, started to burn a battery-sized hole in, in my chest. So I ripped that thing off, and I wrote them in. I said, I think I'm going to stick to the heart rate monitor reading in the morning and not, not wear this battery all day long. So, um, you know, yeah, you just put the heart rate strap on in the morning and, and took five minutes, and that's it. Interesting. So you put this strap on, you then go and uh, whatever, do your just normal day, and then you're saying the next thing you know, well, you're, you, you get some kind of a reading. Yeah, but I app. wouldn't do it all day. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of Bluetooth. I'm not a fan of exposing your body to EMF signals all day long. I'm just... I'm not into that. Even though you could get some self-quantification value out of it, I'm sure. Um, I just right. take five minutes while, while I'm lying in bed in the morning, and that's it. Okay. I, I just take, I take a quick peek, and then that's it. And What else do you measure? Yourself? Do you measure your – like, I measure my waist and my weight. I like the waist just because it's a good indicator of, you know, I can tell – it's interesting. Yeah. If I don't sleep enough, my waist – I can cut – I thought of publishing – an article called The Sleep Diet. I, I've never seen anything like it. I've been mm -hmm. monitoring my waist for two years, measuring one inch above my belly button, which is a little tape measure. And the biggest predictor of a, my waist going down is not push-ups, uh, sit-ups, sprinting, crunches, leg lifts, bicycles. It is how many hours I sleep. I, I, if I don't sleep enough, literally it goes up an inch. I've had it where I got some of when I get the best sleep, just one of those amazing nights of sleep. I've seen my waist drop, get this, two inches. Two inches wow. around, yeah. it's it cut. Yeah. And I've been and seeing that, this. I'm not, um, it's not an aberration. Every every single night that I don't sleep enough or go to bed too late, it's always up. Yep. Yeah, and, you know, that, that's often, you know, people who don't sleep enough, uh, it, it's not just because when you don't sleep enough, you get dysregulation of appetite hormones and you overeat. It's also because you can get hypercortisolic and you tend to you tend to hold on to water and fluids when you're hypercortisolic and have high cortisol levels, and that that can influence that waist measurement as well. But I don't measure that. I don't measure weight. I don't measure waist. Um, I mean, you know, I've been an Ironman triathlete for 10 years, straight out of bodybuilding, and now I'm training to race professionally as a as a Spartan racer, and, and weight is kind of the least of my worries just because of, of that amount right. of buffeting that I put my body through. But what I do measure, in addition to that heart rate variability measurement, is I keep a little pulse oximeter next to my bedside, same thing they use in hospitals that you put on your fingertip to measure your blood oxygen saturation. It costs you 20 30 bucks at, at your local Walgreens, or you could order it online. And it'll tell me my blood oxygen saturation. And if that dips low, that's a pretty good sign that even without me having to go to the lab and get a fancy blood test, 
and I'm dipping low in things like iron, ferritin, hemoglobin concentration, things of that nature. And I'll usually see that when I'm either overtrained or I've been traveling a bunch, like doing a lot of airplane travel, or I just haven't been doing enough iron-rich foods, you know, liver, organ meats, red meat, stuff like that. So uh, pulse oximeter, that's a quick reading that I can do at the same so it just time. Goes on, it, goes on, it goes on your finger. It goes on your finger. Does it prick your finger, or how does it measure? No, it's a it's an infrared measurement. Same thing they use in the hospitals. Uh, Thirty seconds maximum. You know, mine does it in about ten seconds. But I look for a number that's above ninety-seven percent. So I shoot for ninety-seven to ninety-nine percent oxygen okay. saturation for a health parameter when I wake up in the morning. That's another one that I'll measure. Do you um, store that in the app? Or do you just? I don't. I don't store it in an app. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a self quant guy, but I'm really crappy at graphing. That my sweet beat stuff gets stored in an app because that has an upload feature. So as soon as I finish, I press one button and it uploads to my to my online profile. The pulse okay. oximeter, I'd have I'd actually have to write it down, and uh, <laughs> I just I'm I'm not big big into into graphing and and writing this stuff down. So I just take the measurement and then go about my day, and so. Um, that's all I Anything do. Anything else you measure? So you do the one on your finger to get your box to be. Um, and you, you it, do this. This stuff. isn't this isn't a daily thing, but there's two other things that I do. Once a year, I do a comprehensive gut panel. That tests okay. for everything: parasites, yeast, fungus, bacteria, candida, the amount of uh, beneficial bacteria and fatty acids in my in my colon the amount of bacteria in my small intestine, stomach acid, H. pylori, everything. I do one called a uh, CDSA 2.0 with parasitology is the name of the panel. There's a bunch of different panels out there. but I How much do those cost? Uh, if you go to your, your doctor and try and get it and you don't have insurance, it's around 1000 to $1,200. If you order it through a wholesale lab testing company to your house, it's anywhere from 4.99 to 5.99. I use a company called Direct Labs. Um, okay. And I just, I just, it's a, it's a three-day stool test. So three days, you, you poop into the tray, and you know, comes with a little FedEx prepaid label, and you send that off. And within a couple of weeks, you, you <laughs> good thing you're not that FedEx guy that has to pick that yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't, you don't tell him. Unfortunately, it's very hard to hide from my wife the fact that I've got poop tubes in the refrigerator. But it's just once a year. And, you know, I mean, your gut is where you make all your neurotransmitters. It's where your immune system is located. It's distinctly tied to your mood, to your health, to your – I mean, there's a lot of stuff that directly influences What have you found? Have you found Have you found that. Ever that you have parasite load? That you oh, have, man. What's the I've been competing all over the world for 10 years, and I've had the strangest things in my gut. I've had blastocystis. I've had H. pylori. Um, I've had small intestine bacterial overgrowth. I've had from a, from a bout of MRSA that I contracted when competing out in the California wilderness in, in uh, what's, what's billed as the hardest triathlon in the U.S. I came back. I had MRSA. I had to get on very high-grade antibiotics, and it, it nuked the colonic bacteria. So I didn't have any colon. I, you know, I had I couldn't even fart. And you know, th this is the type of test that will tell you <laughs> what's going on with this type of stuff. And, and the cool thing is, like, you know, then you know what you can do to fix it. Do you have do you have a bacterial overgrowth? You could start on an oil of oregano protocol. 
you need to rebuild the, the colonic bacteria, then you start on like a resistant starch protocol. But basically it gives you, gives you a lot of information. So I do that once a year. And then the other thing that I do three to four times a year is what's called a performance panel. It's a blood panel. Um, it's, it's, I go through a company out of San Francisco called Wellness FX. And what they measure are my liver, my kidney, red blood cells, white blood cells, testosterone, cortisol, DHEA, um, all my magnesium, vitamin D, all the things that, that people tend to be deficient in or, or need to have looked at. Does that do trace like minerals panel. as well? That doesn't do trace minerals. Um, you'd have to do like a spectra cell analysis or what's called an ion profile for that. And do you like those? Is, uh, do you ever do those? I like it, but it's not your biggest win. Um, okay. I've done I've done three of those in my life. And okay. um, so you could go to that same company, like Direct Labs, and the one that you get through them, there's a really good one called made by a company called Metametrics. It's called an ion panel. And I, I've is this all in your panel. book? Is this all in your book too? Oh, we've only scratched the surface of what's in my book, dude. <laughs> you've, so you've this is also so uh, somebody's somebody's listening, and they want more. There's more in the book. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot more. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, one one time a year gut test, four times a year blood test, and then daily heart rate variability and pulse ox, and those are my biggest wins. Interesting. So, okay, so we we got that now. One big thing we haven't covered, let's cover now, food. We've talked about exercise, pushing yourself, you know, how to test yourself, how to know. But we, you and I both know if you're not eating right, it's interesting. I, I eat super clean. I have a maid that, or, or uh, somebody here that basically cooks everything from scratch. And they were out of town for about a week. So I either had to, you know, eat out or get food delivered. And I'm here in Hollywood, lots of quote-unquote, healthy places to eat. I order food. I mean, I instantly, I don't feel that good. I don't feel like I normally do when my, you know, maid or assistant's cooking grass-fed beef, eggs, big salads, homemade salad dressing, homemade fit, you know, or, or just simple baked cod, all these things that we eat that are healthy. And I'm going, my God, I, even when, when I try to eat well, eating out, I've stopped eating out because even, quote-unquote, healthy stuff, they're putting salt, weird stuff into it. So let's talk about food in general and then some practical things you can do because not every, uh, people can do because not everybody even has the time uh, to cook for themselves. Yeah. And so, like, so let's talk about big picture food, diet, and then some practical tips. Hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I am, I'm holding in my hands right now this huge, warm loaf of sourdough bread that came out of the oven about – an hour and a half ago. My wife's not here right now. She's she's got the kids over at piano lessons. But um, I'm not paleo. I'm not one of those guys that doesn't eat bread and doesn't eat legumes and doesn't eat grasses and grains and doesn't eat milk. So I live by the philosophy that just about anything on the face of the planet can be made edible and treatable if you or, or digestible if you treat it right. So I look at two components when it comes to the food that I'm going to put into my body. Is it digestible and is it nutrient dense? So let's use a really simple example. Quinoa. Okay. Quinoa is a it's a grass. 
It's chock full of amino acids. It's got nice complex carbohydrates in it. It's got a nice mineral profile, but it also is coated with saponins. Saponins are like soap. And uh, actually, some of the South American populations that you've seen will actually use these same saponins to wash their clothes. So saponin is is very irritating. Saponin is very irritating to the digestive tract. And that allows, you know, it's a survival mechanism for quinoa. It would allow quinoa to be eaten by a mammal, not digested, then pooped out somewhere for its seeds to grow. So it's a survival mechanism. That doesn't mean that humans aren't smarter than quinoa, though. You can, you can rinse your quinoa, you can even soak it overnight in an acidic medium like water and vinegar, and then rinse it in the morning. If you really yep. wanted to go to the nth degree, you could even sprout it on your countertop. That's what, that's what like Native Americans it. did with, Native Americans did with acorns. They used to have a process yep. of running through water yep. to re- reduce the, the bitter tannin. Exactly, exactly. Very similar to that. So you're making it both, you're, you're taking something that was nutrient di- dense and indigestible and making it digestible. Now, there are things, of course, that are digestible that aren't nutrient-dense. You know, uh, sugar cane, for example, natural food, digestible, you know, dense source of glucose and a lot of candy and everything else. It's digestible, but it's not very nutrient-dense at all. Number one, you know that sugar sugar cane is the number one agricultural crop in the world. More acres are devoted, more production. So let's diverge real quick. Let's just go, what do you think of sugar? Because that's you talking about well, controversial National Geographic a few months ago. The cover of their the magazine is sugar, and it's basically scientists saying this. You know, it's as addictive almost as heroin. It has tremendous potential uh, side effect, harmful side effects like cancer and all this. What's your take on sugar? Sugar from natural sources is 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 fine. Like. You know, if, if I if I were to bite off a chunk of this sourdough bread and let it sit in my mouth for about 60 seconds, the salivary amylase in my mouth would turn this into pure sugar within about 60 seconds. So it's not like sugar is unnatural and bad for you. It's just that um, concentrated forms of sugar that are already pre-digested and broken down, such as we'd find in candies and sodas and stuff like that. That's that's where the trouble lies. But um, you know, it's uh, Complex carbohydrates, slow digesting carbohydrates, natural sources of sugar here and there, not a big deal. And, you know, I'll eat everything from sweet potatoes to yams, parsnips to beets to carrots to sourdough bread to, you know, all these things that are sugar. But I just, I don't eat the the big stuff. What about what we all love? You know, the number one food that hunter-gatherers like in the world in taste test, their favorite food is honey. So what about honey? (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I like honey as a sweetener. Um, it's, it's, we use like a nice raw local honey, and that really helps your body build up natural, um, basically it helps build up your immune system to some of the natural uh, allergenic sources or, or nat- natural um, um, allergens you find floating around in the environment. But again, it's a very, very dense source of calories, and so you just need to be careful with it from a caloric standpoint. Um, this right. is something I talk about in the book, too. I mean, like it all depends, too, on your goals. Like, when I'm training for a race, I go into full ketosis. And what that means is I amp up my blood levels of fatty acids so high that I'm turning out the primary source of fuel for the heart, the diaphragm, and the brain. That's ketones. And unfortunately, yep. when you're when you're attempting to biohack yourself into that state, sugars derail you pretty quickly. So, you know, some, sometimes, you know, I won't have bread or, or sweet potatoes. It kind of depends on, on the day or, or what my training goal happens to be at the time. 
But yeah, the Atkins diet. People that do the Atkins diet that would just eat meat and bacon and steak and no legumes, no beans, no bread. They would that puts you into a natural kind of it's high protein, very low balance. That puts you in that state of ketosis. It's interesting on a farm, milk cows, dairy cows oftentimes also go into ketosis because if they're eating grass that has much protein early in the spring, it's funny. You can smell it on a cow. It's a very sweet smell. And sometimes here in Hollywood, you'll meet, uh, like, models that are, like, trying to get really skinny. So they could, like, fashion models. And I can yep. smell it breath. I smell yeah. that same. You can heat. smell that like acetoacetate acetate and beta-hydroxyacetate. Oh, beta I hate that yeah, I mean, smell. You know, breast milk, high in DHA, high in fatty acids. A lot of babies are in ketosis. You know, it's not until we right. shift to Captain Crunch cereal and, and Gerber cereal where we get thrown <laughs> out of the ability to become fat-burning machines. But, you know, ultimately, big picture, nutrient-dense, digestible. I'm standing here in front of my refrigerator right now. If I open it up, I've got, um, what do I have here? Some cold-pressed coffee, nice little antioxidant. Um, I've got liver pate. I've got some, some homemade yogurt from, from the local farm, some nice tomatoes, cilantro, parsley, spinach, kale, some red peppers, um, bone marrow. That's tonight's dinner uh, with asparagus. And then I've got some eggs from the local farm. I've got uh, some dark chocolate. And um, what else is in here? That bone broth and uh, pickles. I've got a bunch of pickled stuff from our garden. Uh, but basically just real food. And, you know, there's very, very little packaged stuff. And I, for, for the nutrition chapter in the book, you know, I wrote the book for, for folks who are moving, shaking, busy, who may, may not have time to make a vat of bone broth or whatever. And so um, my recipes in the book rely a lot upon meals that are quick and easy, like my morning smoothie, you know, some, some kale, some Brazil nuts, cinnamon, a little bit of vanilla, a um, little bit of protein, some almonds, and uh, avocado, and what else is in there? Uh, sea salt. And that gives you a ton of nutrients packed into a little smoothie you can drink on your way to work. So, you know, I've got a lot of meals like that in the book that are just quick, bam, bam, go. You know, or, or you juice. You juice a, you know, carrot with some ginger and a little bit of lemon, and then you add some olive oil and sea salt, and you drink that down. And it's just, you know, a quick meal. So I'll tell you the two books, though, that form the crux of my understanding of nutrition or, or that influence my diet most heavily. Um, the first book is called Deep Nutrition by Kate Shanahan, who works with the okay. Elders, and she uh, she's one of, one of uh, Gary Vitti's, uh, Vitti, Vitti, the, the L.A. Lakers trainer. The Lakers trainer, yeah. Yeah, she she is is uh, the go-to person that he relies upon for, for physical and, and health advice from a nutrition standpoint. Her book is called Deep Nutrition. Um, and then the other book that is uh, fantastic called The Perfect Health Diet. And it goes into basically how our ancestors would have, in many cases, thrown the meat out to the dogs and instead eaten the offal you know, the, the, the liver and the marrow and a lot of the more fat-soluble, rich components of the animal. It goes into, um, you know, traditional diet, how they how they uh, influence the human body and how we've strayed from that. And it's just got some really, really uh, biochemically sound feedback on the way that our body should be. And the Perfect Health Diet and Deep Nutrition are two really good books that, that influence much of what I write about in the nutrition sections of my book. 
All right, we're going to wrap up in just two two more minutes. Uh, I, again, want to recommend Ben Greenfield's book, Beyond Training, Mastering Endurance, Health, and Life. They can get it on Amazon, I'm assuming. They can get it on uh, uh, Ben's website. Uh, tell them where they can get it. Where's the best place? Beyondtrainingbook.com. Okay, and where can where's the best place to learn more about you? BenGreenfieldFitness.com. I have a, an audio podcast that I release twice a week. I write an article once a week, and then also a, a video typically once or twice a week and cover a wide range of topics. Like this week, my three topics were um, how to enhance sexual performance naturally uh, without the use of Viagra. Uh, my other post was on uh, which beers are actually healthy. If you're going to eat beer, how to make the best choices. And then um, the uh, the post that goes up tomorrow is on how to incorporate uh, marine phytoplankton into your diet as a source of minerals. So I kind of kind of run across a wide range of topics on there, but just kind of delve into the cutting edge stuff that flies under the radar. And for those of you listening, uh, you can see Ben's gonna. I'll have this up on my website, tylopez.com, T-A-I-L-O-P-E-Z.com. You can see more about Ben there. Um, I also end my podcast, uh, so tylopez.com. We're going to end with this. 60 seconds. I'm going to ask you a personal favor. My number one weakness is candy. When I go, I could eat like a Spartan, man. I, when I, I like to go to the movies sometimes to see the press. Men like movies. It helps them. They actually found uh, helps with testosterone regulation. It's a de-stressor. That's why men come home and turn the TV on. It's, it's more natural than people think. So I like movies. And I, at my biggest weakness, what can I do? Is there? Do I, should I just eat dark chocolate? Should I just man up and just never eat any? What can I do? That's Because re- it's not. A, I know what I should do, but let's say I help. I eat. I do everything else as almost perfect as po- as I possibly can. If I got a fudge on this yep. one thing, any ideas? Yep, I've got a one-two-three combo for you. So number one is soda water, which is going to give you a feeling of fullness that you should be able to get when you're, you know, at least bring it into the movie theater. Um, Number two is vitamin B12 enriched gum. The stuff I use is called B-Fresh, and it gives you this natural kind of brain high without the reliance upon sugar. So you've got your your vitamin B12 enriched gum, soda water, and then the last thing would be to naturally give yourself the dopamine release that you would normally get from eating the candy, and you do that by by jacking off. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you do that. By, <laughs> you, you do that with a with a supplement called Nakuna Dopa. Um, it also goes by the name L Dopa. It's a dopamine precursor. It's something I've used in my clients before for carbohydrate cravings late at night, and it allows you to have that release of dopamine that your brain is getting normally from the sugar, and instead you're just taking L Dopa. And you combine that with soda water and gum, and you use that one, two, three combo. So two capsules of L-Dopa before you head into the movie theater. you got your, your soda water in your coat pocket. You've got your, your B12-enriched gum, like the B-Fresh stuff, in your other pocket, and uh, you're good to go. And what, So what about dark chocolate or fruit? I've had people say berries, dark chocolate. What are your thoughts? Yay, nay, thumbs up, thumbs down? Yeah, as long as the dark I'm, – I'm a big fan of, like, soy-free – dairy-free dark chocolate. So I get dark chocolate from 
one of two sources. Uh, one is eatingevolved.com. They've got really, really good natural chocolate from eatingevolved.com. Okay. And the other, the other company that has uh, like vitamin D and rich dark chocolate that's gluten free and soy free and dairy free is uh, Zen Evo. Zenevo.com, I think, is their their website. But those are two forms of chocolate that. I mean, chocolate's still sweet and really calorically dense and everything, but those are at least going to do a little less damage than, like, a, a bar of dark chocolate from the average grocery store. All right, Ben. I want to thank you so much. Ben Greenfield, check out beyondtrainingbook.com. Uh, thank you so much. You're changing the world. Thank you for helping me find, like we said, grand theory of everything. We're talking about the grand theory of health. What are those things that can change your life physically, mentally, and uh, bring you the happiness that you're looking for. Thanks so much. I will be talking to you soon. Check out mylopez.com. All right, man. Talk to you later. Bye. Later.